This is the second talk in a series of talks on the five fundamentals, titled The Second Fundamental, Ignorance of the Real is the Root of Suffering, recorded October 13, 1996, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So last month I gave the first in a series of talks on what we call our five fundamentals and seven stages of the path. And these uh, are, as I said then, not new truths, but attempts to distill out the fundamental truths of all these mystical traditions and restate them in more generic terms. Uh, so last uh, month I talked about the first fundamental, which was, in essence, consciousness alone is absolutely real. So today I'm going to talk about the second fundamental. And the second fundamental reads, Ignorance of the real is the root of suffering. So this refers back to the first fundamental. Consciousness alone is absolutely real, and ignorance of the real then is the root of suffering. And then it's, there's a little elaboration, and it says, From ignorance is born the delusion of self. From the delusion of self, desire for the world. From desire for the world, attachment to worldly forms. From attachment to worldly forms, all forms of suffering. So this fundamental is outlining a kind of causal chain so that we can examine our suffering. So if you, uh, if you have suffering, you can ask the question, well, what is causing it? And you can trace it back through this causal chain. So I think the best way to... Uh, understand this is to work backwards, to start with what is most obvious in our lives. And that is the last link in this causal chain, which is all forms of suffering. So let's just start uh, by getting a survey here of what sort of forms of suffering you've experienced, because we're talking about just general everyday suffering of all sorts. Anybody got a... Yes. Well, mine is not general every day. Well, that... You know... It's the range, so yes. Just to say, when I was 37, and my husband was diagnosed with ALS, <laughs> um, what I've experienced in the past three years, I don't think I'll ever complain again. You know? And I mean, when I do complain, I think I'll be very, very conscious of what I'm complaining about. Because watching somebody you love basically get shrink-wrapped into paralysis and lose everything that most people would value in life is beyond words, and beyond, yes, but besides watching someone else lose their life, you know, I was his 24-hour caretaker and left everything that I considered precious, and that was really intense suffering for me. <laughs> well, this is a progressive disease, which takes slowly takes away all sorts of abilities to function and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. So actually, this is a like a full course in suffering from from the beginning where there must have been just minor inconvenience yeah. to the end, yeah, right? it's a total college degree. Yeah, <laughs> postgraduate, I'm sure. And living with somebody who's dying is, is very profound. And it still isn't here. I mean, I've tried to sit and imagine my death, and I still cannot do it. Good. Well, this is an excellent way to begin here, because there's a whole range of sufferings, and sometimes you... Uh, 
it's easy to start with smaller stuff, sufferings in your life to really come to understand them, you know? And if you can start to understand the smaller ones, then it's easy to deal with the bigger ones. So who's got another form of suffering? Now, don't be embarrassed just because she gave this big dramatic one that everybody says, oh, well, my, you know, my little, uh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> what? I ran out of my favorite cereal this morning. You ran out of a good, good example. Oh, yes. While visiting my family, I kept noticing that I wanted them to be different than they were. And that was a lot of my suffering with them. Aha, uh -huh. very good. Very common. Very common one. Yeah. In many years past, uh, my greatest suffering came from relationship problems. And could you well, say a little bit more about it? Well, in a dating it? situation where things would just go awry, I remember the, the pain. And it's interesting looking back how it felt so physical, and yet I know it was emotionally induced, and I don't know all the... Oh, no, it can... It was, it was as painful as anything I've experienced. Emotions can be very physical. We have, our, our language uh, reflects that, you know. We say, I feel like I was kicked in the gut, you know, when somebody hurts us. Feeling a lack of connection with anything. Longing to be connected. Ah, very interesting. That's a more subtle and in some ways very deep form of suffering. Mm, I suffer when I lose patience. In, in certain situations? Situations, yeah. And why do you lose patience? Um, well, because my desires are other than what is happening. So it's so that uh, the situation isn't matching the way you want it to be. It's mm -hmm. a little bit like Nerja said. Yes, great. Mm -hmm. Very common. Anybody else? I also suffer during basic physical pain situations. Physical pain, of course. Fatigue. Fatigue, tiredness. If you think about your day, how much of your day is made up of little annoyances, losing patience, these little forms of, we call, from New York, if you come from New York, you say aggravation. I'm aggravated, right? <laughs> So we're not just talking about the big sufferings like facing death and serious disease and all that, but all the little discontents and aggravations and disappointments that are woven through the day. This is the range of the topic of suffering that we're dealing with. So we, it's good examples here because we have examples from this whole range. So the fundamental says that the immediate cause of our suffering in, in this, uh, this chain of causation, the immediate cause is attachment. Is that true? I think your suffering is uh, the hardest to see that in that case, this loneliness uh, and, and feeling of disconnection. And people often have that. It's not like something specific has happened. It's like something isn't happening. Let's hold on to that one, because I think that, that uh, ties in directly to a much deeper cause of suffering. But, all the, but it does involve a kind of attachment. You mentioned not having your favorite cereal in the morning, right? Well, but that, no, that's an annoyance. You, you're, you're set on cornflakes, and uh, you've got a peach that's about to spoil, and you go to the cupboard, and you open the cornflakes, and the, there's not enough in the box to make a bowl. And there's a little disappointment there, right? Again, it's attachment you were looking forward to, a breakfast of cornflakes, you're not going to be able to have it. 
if we uh, take an example, we can see this quite clearly. If we take a sort of a stereotypical example, let's say you come home one day after work, you're tired, you drive up in the driveway, you walk in the house, and the, your house has been stripped bare of everything valuable. Stereo's gone, TV's gone, computer's gone, everything's gone, and it's been, the house has been burglarized, and all your uh, most precious possessions are vanished. Cause suffering? You've had that happen. I've had that. Ah, did that cause suffering? Yeah. <laughs> For years. For years. I, was, I could, couldn't believe how long I was attached to it, like those diamond rings, which I have come to learn to be nothing but material stuff. But while, while I was in that attachment, I suffered. And when you, when you first walked in, and you, is this something like that? You walked in, you found your house well, burglarized? Yeah. Or, yeah. And I mean, everything dumped on the floor, and you know that whole feeling of being invaded, and and uh, being paranoid about it afterward. Every time leaving the house, locking up everything, and not uh, wanting to buy things after that for a while. So it was not only the immediate shock, but it lasted and lasted. And a sense of vind vindictiveness about whoever it was out there, <laughs> hoping that they were going to be punished in some way for doing this. Good, good. Now, supposing you came home. <laughs> And at the end of the day, and uh, across the street, there was police cars out front, and you saw your neighbors uh, talking to the police, and you stopped by and said, Joe, what happened? He said, oh, I came home, and my house was burglarized. They've taken everything. How much suffering would that cause you? Hmm? I'd buy some new locks from uh, house. Would, you, would it last for years and years, as it did in her case? Yeah. In fact, in fact when, you, when you sympathized with your neighbor and said, oh, gee, I'm really sorry to hear about that, and maybe you start thinking about, gee, crime's going up in the neighborhood, I'd better start locking my door and all that. But I'll bet you by the time you were halfway into your favorite TV show that night, you would have forgotten all about it. Really, to be honest, right? You wouldn't? I think most people would or within a day or two. Supposing you pick up the paper and there's a story about a, a rash of burglaries going on in Florence, which is a town 100 miles away. How much suffering does that cause you? Maybe you have a little sense that, well, the society's going to the dogs, crime's up, you know, that sort of thing, right? A little sympathy for those people. Uh, but th that wouldn't last longer than the news story because the next news story would be about the Mideast. And then you'd be all into that. You'd forgotten about the little story about the rash of burglaries in Florence. So what is the difference here? It's not burglary. It's not things getting stolen that causes suffering. It's your attachment to those things. That's what causes the suffering. Objectively, it's all the same. Whosever stuff is getting ripped off. But your suffering comes from your attachment. If you're not attached to things, uh, there's no particular suffering. Now... The fact of the matter is, all these worldly things, television sets, stereos, cereal, whatever it is, they're all impermanent. Everything is impermanent, including our bodies. And so, whenever we get attached to any worldly thing, suffering is inevitable somewhere down the line. Maybe not right away. Maybe we are enjoy the things for now, but we are setting ourselves up for suffering. This is why Anandamoyamai, the great 
Hindu saint, writes, happiness that depends on anything or anyone turns into sorrow when that particular thing or person is out of reach. Everything in this world is transitory, so also worldly happiness. It comes and the next moment it is gone. If permanent abiding happiness is to be found, that which is eternal will have to be realized. So because of this fact of life, everything is impermanent, every attachment is like a time bomb waiting to go off. Wenning says, Wenning is the founder of Zen Buddhism, if we never let our mind become attached at any time to anything, we, uh, we gain emancipation. For this reason, we make non-attachment our fundamental principle. And Teresa Vila, who's a great Christian mystic, she writes, There is no doubt that by persevering in this detachment and abandonment of everything, we shall attain our objective, which is the end of suffering. It is an all-mystical path. So this practicing of detachment is a tenant in all mystical traditions. Uh, whatever tradition you read, you'll find this emphasis on practicing detachment, practicing detachment. And it has a very uh, sound, practical purpose. It, you don't get brownie points for being particularly holy. It's just that if you, if you want to eventually put an end to suffering, you want to understand that your attachments are going to cause you suffering. What causes the most suffering isn't so much the attachment to the thing, but to something the thing symbolizes. And that's something to look for. Attachments are more subtle. Uh, if you're very wealthy and, uh, you know, your color TV gets ripped off, it's nothing to buy another TV. I mean, you just call up the store and have one delivered that same night. So it's not so much the, the television getting ripped off, but you mentioned, for instance, in the case when you were burglarized, the sense of being invaded. It's an attachment here to security or a sense of feeling safe, which is much more subtle than the actual loss of the object. So underneath the actual physical material things, uh, we are often attached to something that's a lot more subtle and a lot deeper and something more uh, mental or emotional. So then the next question is, what causes attachments? Well, according to the preceding link in our, in our chain of causation, as the fundamental states it, desire for the world causes attachments to worldly forms. So we get attached to, to worldly things because we desire them, or we're averse to them, which is really the flip side of desire. You know, it's, it's the desire to avoid, really. We don't get attached to things we don't desire. I have never, ever been disappointed going to a restaurant and finding out they don't have lima beans on the menu. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I've never said, oh, really? I, just, I felt like lima beans tonight. I, I don't hate lima beans, but, you know, I, I don't have any particular desire for lima beans. These are obvious things, but we don't really notice it in the moment when they're happening. All our attachments are, uh, come from some desire, or I said some uh, aversion, some desire to avoid something or some desire to grasp something. And this desire is based on a discrimination that is partly mental. It's not like a, a philosophical thing. We don't have to sit around and think about it, but it, we're, it comes in our upbringing, the way we look at the world, a discrimination of what is pleasant or unpleasant, or what we like or we dislike, or what we consider good or bad. 
uh, in the video we saw last Sunday, there was this Mongolian woman. She was talking about her youth, and she said, when I was young, she said, I had it all. You know, I had good looks, I had a boyfriend, I had lots of horses. And then suddenly you realize you're in a different culture, you know, <laughs> this was wealth. So that was considered a good thing. If I had lots of horses in the backyard, I'd be trying to get rid of them. I'd be calling the Humane Society saying, get these horses out of here. It's telling about this because it means the things themselves aren't pleasant or unpleasant or, or likable or not likable, but it's the way we perceive the world. This is why Krishna tells Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, likes and dislikes are arrayed in whatever our senses grasp. A man should not come under their sway. Likes and dislikes are his opponents. We come under the sway of uh, what we like, what we find pleasant, and what we dislike and find unpleasant, and this sets up this desire to avoid what is unpleasant, to grasp what is pleasant. And through this process, we grasp what is pleasant, and then we want to repeat that experience. And through the repetition of it, the attachment builds up. But even what we like and dislike uh, is changeable and impermanent. Uh, food's a good, very concrete example. You know, as you grow up, unless you're still uh, stuck in a certain pattern, some people are, your food tastes uh, tend to change, you know. When I was, I don't know, 10, 11, uh, I didn't have a list of things for my mother not to buy because I disliked them, because that would have been a huge list. I had a list of things that I would eat. Hamburger, peas, potatoes, and ice cream, I think, was about <laughs> on it on the list, you know. Well, my taste changed over time, and a lot of things that I said, ugh, that's gross, that's horrible, I, I came to really love. So what we think is uh, pleasant, unpleasant changes. And even in greater chunks of experience, this happens. And one of the great uh, examples of this is romantic relationships, which you mentioned earlier, dating. And if you watch uh, how a romantic relationship unfolds, you meet somebody, you find them attractive, desirable, exciting, entertaining, witty, and you're with them and you want to repeat that experience. So you uh, either call them up for a date or they call you up for a date. And then between times, if you remember, if you're dating now, you can't wait to go out with them again, to see them again, right? And then... You, you're with them again, and the experience repeats, and it's still great. And it repeats, and it's still great. So you decide to live together or get married or something, right? You move in together. And then after a while, the sex gets a little boring, the stories get old. <laughs> and what was pleasant, so pleasant and so wonderful, is no longer so pleasant, so wonderful. And then if it uh, really gets bad, you start complaining about it because things aren't going the way you want them to go. And you start fighting, and the suffering starts, and there are recriminations and all that. And you leave that relationship, and you go out and look for another one. You have this attachment to that original, initial excitement of a romance. And people who don't get over that, by the way, never really get into stable relationships, because that's what they're attached to. That's what they're always looking for. And it's got, from that point of view, it's got nowhere to go but downhill. So it's a very good example of how the desire for what we find pleasant creates an attachment, and then we keep trying to repeat that attachment, and that keeps causing us suffering. Even if we are more mature and we learn in a relationship there are deeper things in a relationship uh, that come to the surface after you get over the, the uh, initial you know, romantic falling in love and whatever, and we learn to play in a relationship more, and even if a relationship deepens and deepens,
uh, over time. It's happened to my father and his second wife, who had a wonderful relationship at the end of their lives. And they weren't even particularly spiritual, but it was all based on giving to each other and uh, enjoying each other, appreciating each other. Uh, still, eventually, we die. We're ultimately going to lose that. So again, even uh, even when things are working out in that sense, still the attachment, uh, if we're attached, there's going to be suffering. It's just inescapable. This is how Catherine of Siena, another great Christian mystic, analyzes this from a, from a, a Christian point of view. And this is God talking to her in a vision. Do you want me to tell you why people suffer? You know that love always brings suffering if what a person has identified with is lost. These souls, in one way or another, have identified with the earth in their love. Some have identified with their wealth, some with their status, some with children. And so, in one way or another, they hunger for and feed on earth. They would like to be stable, but they are not. Indeed, they are as passing as the wind, for either they themselves fail through death or my will deprives them of the very things they love. They suffer unbearable pain in their loss, and the more disordered their love in possessing, the greater is their grief and loss. For as I told you, the world cannot satisfy them, and not being satisfied, they suffer. This is a medieval Christian woman giving the same analysis here. Nothing's changed, right? Here's how the Buddha put it. Thus, whatever kind of feeling one experiences, pleasant, unpleasant, or indifferent, one approves of and cherishes the feeling and clings to it. And while doing so, craving springs up. But craving for feelings means clinging to existence. And on clinging to existence depends sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Thus arises this whole mass of suffering. So here's a Christian, Buddhist, same analysis stuff. Everybody's noticed the same thing. The bottom line is, this clinging to existence, this clinging to life, in the end, we're going to die. So it's all going to be taken away from us, all worldly things. We're going to lose them. So uh, this is uh, nothing that's very mysterious here. It's quite obvious. In fact, most people understand that and... If you make this a little analysis, it's just a way of people saying, oh, yeah, I knew that. There's nothing that mystics have discovered, particularly. But the trouble is, then people say, what can you do about it, though? That's just the way life is, right? You've got to make the best of things. And this is the difference between a worldly uh, approach to this problem and a mystical one. Because the mystics say, no, wait a minute. Let's look a little deeper. There's something we're missing here, something very obvious, but we're overlooking it in its very obviousness. We're starting to take things for granted when we say, well, that's just the way life is, so you can't do anything about it, so eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. If we look into this whole process, this chain of causation deeper, we find, or we ask the question, do all desires cause suffering? No. No. What desire doesn't? Desiring to help somebody. Or, I mean, all the beingness I was with my husband, I didn't suffer because I was helping him. <laughs> ah, very, very good. 
I, I'm actually going to get to that in a minute, but let's hold, let's put that one on hold, but very interesting. First of all, before we get to that, it's just like attachments. It's only your desires that cause you suffering, right? It's not desire per se in that sense. It's anybody else's desires. It's desires for your possessions or your desires for possessions, your desires for a loved one, your desire to cling to your life. So my desire to cling to my life, uh, especially if you don't know me very well, doesn't cause you much suffering at all. In the heart of all this, we believe there is some self, some I, some ego that possesses these desires, that makes these desires my desires, and those desires arising over there, your desires. Do you get this? This is getting a little more subtle here. Our fundamental says, from the delusion of self, desire for the world arises. It's identification of desire with a self that is the problem. This is why Ananda Moyamai says, it is personal desire that is the very cause of suffering. And that adjective personal is very important. And not all mystics put it in. But you can read it in when you, when you uh, read mystics, because they always mean that. Here's what Rumi says. The prophets and saints do not avoid spiritual combat. The first spiritual combat they undertake in their quest is the killing of the ego and the abandonment of personal wishes and desires. Personal. Now, you mentioned when you have a desire to help somebody else, a selfless desire, a desire that isn't coming out of getting something for self. Oh, it's very interesting. We have a different sort of uh, reaction here. You don't necessarily have suffering from that. If it's mixed, and often it is, frankly, in our lives, you know, uh, then you will suffer to the extent that it is personal in that sense, selfish. You want something out of it. If it is truly, freely a desire uh, to help somebody unconditionally, you don't want anything back from it, you can't suffer. You don't, you're not expecting any sort of return or reward. So how can you suffer? This gets very subtle, and it's worth looking into. And this is a story that is told by um, Joseph Goldstein. He was in India. Some of you have been to India recently. And he assaulted by beggars all the time. <clears throat> and he had to work out, as I understand, everybody goes to India, has to work out some sort of system of when to give and not give and whatnot. And he was down in the marketplace, and he was buying a mango, I think. And he bought the mango, and he turned around, and there was a little boy, a beggar boy, you know, standing there. And so he thought, well, okay. And he gave the boy the mango, and the boy took the mango and just turned his back and walked off. And he said, in my own mind, this little thought came up. What? Not even a thank you? Not even a smile? The boy hadn't reacted at all, just took the mango. And then he realized, ah... You see, this wasn't total selfless, unconditional giving. He wanted something back. He was attached to a certain reaction, a pleasant reaction. He didn't get it, so he suffered. If you could give that mango absolutely unselfishly, it wouldn't matter. You wouldn't suffer. You couldn't suffer. Do you see how that works? So this, this uh, whole uh, this idea that, the, that our desires are personal is the key to this, 
And it's also very important to note that because when we read teachings like I just said, uh, quoted you from Rumi or Ananda Moyamaya, if we overlook that, we can misunderstand them completely. A lot of people think that these teachings means no desire should arise in the body-mind. And so on a spiritual path, they start struggling to suppress desire. Every time a desire comes up, well, then they have a new scale of pleasant and unpleasant or good and bad. This is bad, and so they try to beat it down. You know, they've just transferred this scale of opposites into their life from a spiritual point of view. And then also they meet teachers. Then now they have this image that, of course, the perfect teacher has absolutely no desires. And they go around, they meet teachers, and they obviously have desires, you know. And then they got all disillusioned, then they get disillusioned with the spiritual path. They say it doesn't work or whatever. Now, on a spiritual path, in the course of a spiritual path, it is true that certain what I would call, from borrowing a term from this culture, neurotic desires do just evaporate. They just fade away. They just, it just becomes unimportant to you. Especially those desires that were based on some sort of symbolic gratification. When you can see through them, uh, then the, the symbolism doesn't mean anything to you anymore, and so the desire just evaporates. But what we might call those primal biological desires never go away. Even the Buddha had a desire to pee when his bladder got full. Do you know what I mean? It's true. So it's not the arising of desire, but it's this, again, this identification, this sense that this desire belongs to some me in here. So, so far, what our analysis has shown is suffering arises from attachment. We don't suffer unless we're attached to something. Attachment comes from personal desire, because we liked it, and so we repeat it, now we get used to it, we get attached to it. And personal desire, personal desire, comes from this sense of self. That there is a self in here that has these desires. So, now notice that if there really is a self that has these desires, we're stuck. There's nothing you can do about it. I mean, I got my desires, you know, this is just the way I feel. I mean, what can I do? But supposing there is no self in there that has these desires... And this is indicated by our fundamental when it says, from the delusion of self, desire for the world arises. In other words, what makes you think when a desire arises in your body, let's say, that it belongs to any you? Let's say an example. You're out hiking in the woods. It's a hot day, you get tired, you sit under a tree to rest, you look back, a cloud passes through the sky. Thirst arises in your throat. Why does the thirst belong to you and not the cloud? You don't think the cloud belongs to me. You don't say, oh, my cloud's passing through the sky there. Right? Why? It's just phenomena in consciousness, but why is some phenomena mine and other phenomena not? I'm asking you, does anybody have any idea why you do this? Well, we believe our thoughts. I mean, we would think I'm thirsty, so we believe our thoughts. Uh, yeah, well, we, it's not, we know we are thirsty. I mean, there's thirst. If we, you know, thirst refers to, you know, your tongue gets, I got so thirsty the other night I couldn't speak in my dream. I had trouble speaking. I had to wake up and go get a drink of water so I could go back and finish the conversation in the dream. <laughs> That's true. But you're right. The thought is what makes it mine. 
We do believe our thoughts. The thought we believe is in us as opposed to the cloud. Yes, that's right. Exactly right. There's a thought. Not something we've worked out philosophically, but there's a thought there. Oh, this is mine. That's yours. And we apply this to the whole body, by the way, not just thirst. So anything that arises within this body. So let's ask, just ask the question of the whole body all at once. I have a body, I think. But who is this I that has this body? Who? Who or what? Or where is it? Now this is the, where mystics start to look deeper than most people. And they say, if you go to look for that I, whatever it is, or whatever you think it is, that supposedly owns this body, you're not going to find it. You're never going to find it. This is a basic teaching in all mystical traditions. There is no self, fundamentally. This thing, uh, a reference to this word, I, uh, mine. There's only a conventional meaning that's a thought meaning, divides up the world in a certain way. In Buddhism, the, one of the fundamental tenets is an Atman. That's the basic teaching of the Buddha. It means no self, literally. Atman means self, an means no, so an Atman. And the Buddha said, when you go look to see if there is any self there, no doer of deeds is found. No one ever reaps their fruit. Empty phenomena are there. Thus does the world roll on. This isn't just a statement to believe, it's a statement to go check out. See, see if you can find the doer of these deeds, the owner of this body, the one who has these desires. The Hindu uh, sage Shankara writes, There is neither birth nor death, either bound nor aspiring soul, neither liberated soul nor seeker after liberation. This is the ultimate and absolute truth. This is the highest teaching of uh, Advaita Hinduism. There is no seeker in here. There's no one bound. There's no one to be liberated. There is, there is not this thing that we think there is. Catherine of Siena, I've already quoted, Christian mystic, says, In self-knowledge then thou wilt humble thyself, seeing that in thyself thou dost not even exist. And the great Sufi Ibn Arabi writes, Know that you are an imagination, as is all that you regard as other than yourself an imagination. A thought, you see, as just as you said. It's not that we don't think this, that the thoughts arise about this, that we have thoughts that we are a self, but they, they are imaginary. He says, know that you are an imagination, as is all that you regard as other than yourself. Because if, if the self is imaginary, then so is the world imaginary. If there's, if there's no I, there cannot be any other. No subject, there can't be an object. They share the same boundary. You know, if I draw a boundary on a, on a blackboard, then the inner part of the boundary is I, and the outer part of the boundary is the world. If I erase that, if I take it away, it's just all blackboard. There's no, there's no self, there's no world, there's no I, there's no other. It does have a kind of existence in the sense that it is imaginary, and we work with it. And uh, we can see a parallel in this, just like the border between Canada and the U.S. 
except for the Great Lake region, the border runs across some parallel. Does anybody know what it is? The 39th parallel or something? 4440. 4440? 4440 or fight. <laughs> oh, oh, that's right. That was a slogan. So it's 44. That's the 40 minutes. Right. This is a purely imaginary line. If you go up to the border, you can drive up in a, within a day from here. Go look. You won't see any parallel on the ground. It's one continuous ground. You know what I mean? It's something superimposed, a thought, imaginary, an image. And it doesn't, it's not that it doesn't have its uses. It does have its uses. In fact, there's all sorts of uses. You know, there are trade barriers and stuff. And you, like, you can't cross this without going through customs. And I mean, look how much effect this, this something's imaginary has in our lives. It does affect our lives. But the truth of the matter is there is no 44-40 parallel there. It does not exist except in the imagination. That's the point here. This is why Nagarjuna, great uh, Buddhist philosopher, writes of enlightenment. He says, the once believed ultimacy of the line of division between the self and the not-self is rejected as untrue. That's what enlightenment shows you. The Christian mystic Meister Eckhart writes, if we will see things truly, they are strangers to goodness, truth, and everything that tolerates any distinction, any boundary. They are intimates of the one that is bare of any kind of multiplicity and distinction. So in reality, this distinction between self and world, this boundary that creates this sense of I, is imaginary. It does not actually exist out there. And so that's why the teaching is that the, the, the sense of self, that the self is something real, is a delusion. And it's a delusion that comes from not seeing things truly. In other words, not seeing reality. Being ignorant of reality and literally ignoring reality. Not looking at something that's just perfectly obvious. This brings us back to our second fundamental. And going back another preceding uh, link in the chain, from ignorance is born the delusion of self. Therefore, ignorance of the real is the root cause of suffering. Ignorance of the reality that there is no self in here that has any desires, that can become attached to anything, and that suffers. Now, let's pause for a moment and just see how something imaginary could cause so much suffering. How could it be true that all the suffering in the world is built on something imaginary? And we can see from our everyday lives at least some examples where tremendous suffering comes from something imaginary. For instance, you go to the doctor, and for your annual checkup, and they take some x-rays and tests and this and that, and uh, you're waiting in the doctor's office, or you come back a few days later, and the doctor says, I'm really sad to tell you this, but your body's riddled with cancer. You've got about six months, and uh, you know, just, it's inoperable, no treatments are going to work. Imagine the suffering that would cause. I mean, you think it's bad coming and finding your house burglarized. It's like finding your body burglarized, you know what I mean? You'd go home. You couldn't just forget this by flicking on the news. The Mideast crisis would mean nothing to you. Your mind would be focused on this. 
You'd be, and, and, you know, people have written about it. There's studies recently, uh, good studies by Elizabeth Kubler-Roth and so forth, the stages you go through of denial and grief and all that, you know. You'd start going through all this. Now, supposing two weeks later, doctor call up and say, you better come to my office right away. You get down there and say, I'm so sorry, I got to tell you, we got your x-rays mixed up with somebody else's. You're perfectly okay. You don't have any cancer. Now, all that suffering was based on something imaginary, wasn't it? The reality was you did not have any cancer. It was based on something imaginary, something your mind was cooking up based on information, based on thoughts. All that suffering had absolutely no basis in reality and how much suffering that would be. Supposing you're walking down an alley I mean, you're downtown, you know, uh, eating in a restaurant here you, in Eugene, even. It's getting to be a little, uh, having some crime-ridden neighborhoods. And you go through an alley trying to get to your car. And uh, this hulky sort of guy starts moving after you. And you sort of start walking a little faster. And, <laughs> and you hear, oh, and there's no one else around. You know, you're looking around for some place to run. And you look back, and then you, you realize he has razor blades for fingers, you know. <laughs> And then, and you're trying to run, and suddenly you find it's really getting hard to run. You're just like going through water, and then he opens his mouth, and there's just these spikes, steel spikes for teeth and stuff, you know, and you're sinking down into the pavement, and, and then boom, you wake up. Right? Terror, heart pounding. It's all imaginary. So we shouldn't be surprised that something imaginary can cause real suffering in that sense. And this is the, the, the same principles that work here. And that's why a lot of analogies in mystical traditions uh, about enlightenment is like waking up from a dream. And it's a very good analogy because the solution to suffering is not, cannot be found within the dream and the ultimate solution. It's not, the real solution is not to get away from the boogeyman who's running after you with, you know, razor blade hands. The real solution is to wake up and realize that it was imaginary. And that's why that term, uh, the Buddha, is the awakened one, the one who is awakened. So this refers back then to the first fundamental. Our problem is we ignore the reality that this uh, sense of our experience of the world is predicated on I and other, self and world, is a delusion based on our ignorance of the reality. So what is the reality? Our term for it here is consciousness alone. And as Mike mentioned earlier, other traditions will have other terms. The great Tao, Brahman, uh, Allah, or whatever. This is why Ananda Moyamai says, What does direct perception of that ultimate reality mean? Seer, seeing, and seen, where these three are realized as modifications created by the mind superimposed on the one all-pervading consciousness. A wonderful description of the world from a, a Gnostic's point of view. Ignorance of this reality causes suffering because it involves us in this whole uh, chain of causes. Bokar Rinpoche, a great Tibetan, describes this very well. He says, Being under illusion means perceiving objective appearances and mental appearances as having independent reality. 
Consequently, we enter into the game of attachment and aversion, depending on whether we sense them as pleasant or unpleasant. When illusion ceases, appearances continue to exist, but they are no longer assimilated as objects to be grasped by a subject. They are perceived as natural radiance of the Buddha mind. But in this case, attachment and aversion have no substance and therefore no suffering can arise. Does everybody get that? It's not that the world of appearances vanish, but it's a whole different way of perceiving the world of appearances. The appearances themselves are, as beautifully put, the radiance of this consciousness. So, this is what ultimately uh, enlightenment's about. It's about chasing, uh, chasing, it's about tracing back through this chain of causes and getting to the bottom fundamental cause of suffering, which is ignorance, and then dispelling that ignorance and seeing things as they truly are, as Meister Eckhart said. So I hope this little talk helped clarify the fundamentals, so when you read the fundamental, you understand it better. But much more importantly, uh, this, the fundamental and this laying it out this way uh, can serve as a guide to your own practice, your own inquiry, your own looking into this. Most people try to escape suffering as quickly as possible. Whenever suffering arises in their lives, they right away want to try and do something about it. But mystics say suffering has value. And some practices you actually engage in forms of suffering in order to study it. This doesn't mean that you have to, you know, never take an aspirin for a headache or anything. But just recognize that, that suffering itself has value before you rush so blindly to get away from it. And there's so much suffering in our lives, I don't... Personally, ever I never thought I had to engage in any sort of suffering. There's sufferings all around. But uh, spend the time looking at it while it's there. There's a wonderful uh, analogy that I have for this. Suffering is like the bobber on a fishing line. You throw your line out, the bobber sits there in the water. When it wiggles, it means you've got a fish on the end. And you start pulling it in. When you have suffering, that is a sign. Oh, attachment. Next level down. Identify the attachment, see it clearly. Uh, then go a little deeper. What's the desire this attachment is based on? All right? Identify and, and see that desire. And then go deeper and see what is the, uh, what is the self here that has this desire. You keep doing this, ultimately you won't find any self. It's the not finding that convinces you through your own experience. You don't have to take any mystic's word for it. Eventually it dawns and you, my gosh, there just isn't any self here after you've looked and looked. Along the way, if you can identify an attachment, if you can clearly identify it and see what it is, once you've identified it, you can surrender it, especially when you can identify it as a mental attachment, uh, an image. Self-images are great ones. I've talked about this before. On my path, I realized I had this tremendous uh, self-image of always being right. And so I'd always get upset if anybody ever challenged that. And when I could see it clearly, I mean, I could really watch just in the moment somebody saying, oh, you're, that's a stupid idea. And I feel myself getting all defensive. And I could just see that I have this image. And it's just easy. Just let it go. And then when it says that's a stupid idea, it's like there's no target for the arrow to hit. It just passes through. If you don't have an image of being right all the time, you can say, oh, yeah, you're right. Maybe it is a stupid idea. What's your idea? 
So along the way, you don't have to wait until the end, working with this, you can gain real freedom, real freedom from a, a number of forms of suffering that will just fade away in your life. That's what transforming that means, transforming these, uh, uh, your own experience. Mitchell, yeah. sometimes when you're, you're real in the line and the little bobber is suffering, and then you reel it in and then the hook is suffering and the fish is suffering. Like what she mentioned, you know, the loneliness or whatever, I mean, or the romantic things. I mean, there's so much suffering behind suffering sometimes. When you get, yes, but you, there is a bottom to it. And the bottom is, and, and thank you for reminding me because this wasn't in my notes. The bottom line of the loneliness is whenever we are identified with the imaginary boundary of being self, that we feel we're locked in here and we're disconnected from the world, that in itself is suffering. No, don't, no desire has to rise, no attachment has to rise, or whatever. That in itself is suffering, and it's true suffering. It's based on an intuition this should not be. We, there's something wrong with this feeling that I'm in a prison in the world, cut off from everything. It's not true, and that's what we know. Our loneliness, again, is, has value. It's telling us something. This isn't true. And our, that desire, that fundamental desire that is, that, that causes the loneliness is the desire for God, the desire for selflessness, the desire to disband this boundary, or let me put it this way, to recognize this boundary is imaginary. It's just something to play with. The initial delusion creates this whole mass of suffering, lamentation, grief, and all that. But they can all be traced down to this one delusion. In the beginning, it's difficult to see this, but you get good at it, at spotting an attachment. You see it's just imaginary. It does, it's not, once you see, really see it's imaginary, it's not no big problem releasing it. And it starts to go faster and faster. And the whole layers uh, of suffering can be just uh, abandoned. But it does take, in the beginning, it takes really observing, paying attention to your life, paying attention to your everyday life, and, and looking at these situations where suffering does arrive as an opportunity. Not as something just to, you know, take a pill or go to a movie or get away from. Looking as an opportunity, facing reality, and, and then going into it, diving into it. Eventually, this whole inquiry leads to this basic attachment to self to wanting to preserve and protect and defend and enhance this thing that just is not there. And this is why uh, Ananda Moyamai says, the minute that this final basic attachment is surrendered, at that very instant occurs the revelation of the indivisible, unbroken perfection which is ever revealed by the self, or the big S. So you remove the veil and it's just there. Enlightenment is not something that's created, that isn't already present. It's just a matter of lifting the veil. So, any questions or comments? Yeah. As you were talking, it, it seems like it all comes down to this state of ignorance in which you feel there is a self, and when you get rid of that, and you say that the way you do that is to go look for the self. But because I am ignorant, when I look for the self, I find it. Well, ah, what, what do you find, for instance? Um, I find something that feels to me is if it is 
a personal lack or it is it does feel personal and i don't know how it could be otherwise since i'm not enlightened no but here's the point when you go look you have to identify very clearly what you think you are for instance um I don't know, you might have a very, very strong sense that, yes, I really am this body. I, I feel very personal about this body, right? Okay, great. That's very important to identify what you think it is. Then, if you keep paying attention to your life, you find that, for instance, in a dream, maybe you are a bird. So, you still have a sense of self in the dream, but it's no longer a sense of this body that is the sense of self. Or maybe you dream you're much younger with a, you know, a different body or whatever. So if you, over a period of time of observing, you begin to realize, yes, we certainly do think we are things. But when you watch them, you see that these things are all impermanent and ephemeral. And yet that, that sense of self is still there. But it, it can't be this thing because this thing, I have experiences where this thing is absent, but I still feel it. Do you see what I mean? So it's, it's watching that closely and clearly that you begin to get a sense of all this phenomena as being shifting and impermanent and all that, and it can't be you. Ultimately, that sense of personal refers to consciousness. This is why in the Hindu tradition they say you are the, the big self, do you know? You are the, uh, the Atman. Atman is Brahman. It would be just as um, logical from an enlightened point of view to say, you could either say the, the, the sky, the, the clouds are not me, the desire is not me and all that, or you could say it's all me. It's all me. Everything is me. So in a certain sense, awakening has a more intimate, more personal quality than you've ever experienced before about the world because your experience of pers what's personal and intimate is very limited. It's only to those things that are yourself. Do you see what I'm driving at? I see, but it doesn't... Uh, logically, I see, but I don't get beyond that. Stop at my ignorance. Of course, everybody stops at their ignorance. Knock and it shall be opened. That's the teaching. Seek and you shall find. But th that means you might have to knock for a while, do you know? I tell you what you're saying. Because just the fact that you're asking it and you're aware that you're ignorant, you know, that you're, you're ahead of 90% of humanity. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, I leave here and I probably won't really get, you know, your, your, your bottom line, but if I think about it all week, you know, and if, if I feel like, gee, I'm in ignorance, but I keep doing like you say, you know, just keep asking, I mean, that's really the, the spiritual path. It's called a quest. The quest is based on a question. And I think we're so hard on ourselves because we don't get it, or, or this dear woman, well, I don't get it yet, or, you know, I, I can't get beyond it. Well, it's just a matter of time, <laughs> you know? Let me just say this, the fact that we ask the questions, I think, is it. I, I think that's very right. And, and it's silly to compare yourself to other people. My teacher, Dr. Wolf, took 29 years. 29 years on a spiritual path. Brilliant man. Understood intellectually quite quickly. You know, got to that point of ignorance. But he kept knocking. Uh, Wei Ning, who I mentioned, the founder of Zen Buddhism, was in a, an illiterate um, wood cellar, for wood fire wood cellar in the marketplace, heard the Diamond Sutra, somebody reciting it, and his mind opened up. So, who knows? That's grace. That's, you know. Or maybe you get it in bits and pieces as you go. Well, you do have insight in bits and pieces as you go, and 
And that process gives you more confidence when you actually see things working, so to speak. Do you know what I mean? Oh, you try, oh yes, really. Oh, look, I can see that attachment so clearly. How, and what a silly attachment is. It's purely something imaginary I made up. I have this image of myself as being never wrong. How ridiculous that mm. is. Let go of that. It's, it's not that hard to do when you can see it clearly. And then it's quite marvelous, and it's an experiential thing. Somebody says something that you, you, you notice. You might even feel a little of that old energy or just arising, but it hardly gets any place, and the remark just goes right through, and you actually feel that sense of freedom, expansion, emptiness, that emptiness in the, in the sense of spaciousness. And, and those things are what give you the confidence. This is your own experience, not anything you heard, but now your own experience to look deeper, to take greater risks, to examine, uh, you know, give up more and more of what, how you thought the world would be and, and try to be more and more open to actually what is going on. But you, you uh, it's this funny dance, you have to keep dancing, you know, keep stay on the dance floor. See the catch 22, and I, I thank you for saying that to you, because I'm right with you on that. I feel the same way, and yeah. then what I'm trying to do is look at my attachment to that enlightenment. And that's because I, you know, I've been in stages before where I'm suffering because it's why don't I get it? And realizing that it's itself atta- is yes. the catch twenty two. Uh, it is indeed to home attachment to meditation, attachment to this practice. It, it is indeed ultimately attachment to the idea of enlightenment or God union or whatever becomes a barrier. Why? Because it's selfish. You want to be enlightened because you want to be released of suffering. You want exactly what what the person in the street wants when they buy a lottery ticket. Yeah. So I mean, nothing's really changed in that sense, except that along the way you've shed a lot of stuff, and ultimately that has to be given up. But the real work is in the moment. It's not. A, it's not about the expectation of what's going to happen. It's the curiosity of what is happening. This is why you'll read in a lot of spiritual traditions, uh, especially the Taoist tradition. You know, Lao Tzu says, "In worldly life, you learn more and more every day. On a path, you learn less and less." And you learn less and less until you know nothing at all. So this is part of this process of opening yourself to this kind of curiosity, the kind of curiosity that's often uh, symbolized by a child. You can't enter the kingdom of heaven until you become like a little child. Or as Lao Tzu says, my mind is like a babe who hasn't even learned to smile yet. Kind of like a process of unknowing. Exactly, and it's very often described exactly those terms, especially in the Christian uh, tradition. For me, I find the further I'm on the path, and I, instead of getting answers, I find more questions. So I've really tried to, and it's fascinating, I just love it. Okay, I'm never going to find out, but boy, this is really fun. But it's going like this instead of imploding into a final solution. Now, that's just that's my experience of it. Yes, this will happen. There'll be more and more and more questions. At a certain point, you want to realize that the questions can never be answered by the thinking mind. All the thinking mind can ever do is produce more imaginary boundaries. It can redraw the world virtually infinite ways. You can create any world out of imagination. And if you read through the um, anthropological literature, you find people have all sorts of worlds, shamanic worlds and uh, Christian worlds and... uh, Hindu worlds, one world has reincarnation and this and that, another world has heavens, you know, you send up through heaven after death. I mean, just marvelous creations. So the answer to this question I'm saying is at a certain point you begin to realize 
this thinking mind is never going to really know. It can never know. It's terrific at what it does. It creates, but it never knows. Something else knows. But in our day-to-day -day experience, we can get little practical knowings. Um, like, for me, my, my sufferings are attachments to things from my ego. And I can be in a situation and I'm starting to see how my ego is causing ultimate suffering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And starting to let that go a little at a time. Um, so that's just, I just see that. That's the only thing I can relate to when you talk about self. It's, and in my path, the real progress was in a day-to-day -day life, not in meditation. The meditation is necessary to, to train the mind to be able to look. But uh, I, I didn't have a lot, all that great experiences in meditation. I've read about other people who, you know, far more profound experiences with in meditation. Some envy. Hmm? <laughs> with some envy. Oh, I, well, on my path, I, I uh, yeah, I'm as envious of anybody who knew more than me or I thought they did. You know, that was part of my suffering. But uh, in the beginning, I was much more fascinated by all sorts of phenomena that would happen in meditation, and then as I got more into it, I realized all this was, you know, kind of fireworks, and I got much more interested in what the nitty-grittiness is about life as it's actually lived, and that's where I started to get really, you know, the, the insights that made the difference. Yeah. At the risk of <clears throat> extending suffering, but maybe... We'll take one more, and then we'll, we'll <laughs> formally break, and then if anybody else wants um, to hang around, we'll continue. I heard going. years ago that uh, in life, pain is necessary, and suffering is optional, and as we've been on this topic, I realize that at this moment I'm in that situation. I, uh, I've been trying to diet the last couple of weeks and I get very hungry at 11.30. I used to feed that and eat and if I didn't, I'd be in great pain. And now, the last couple of days, certainly, I feel that pain and there's no suffering. It's like, yeah, it's there and it's gone, but it's in, it sort of became clear as you talk that it's really, an suffering is really a choice. And if I can take this and apply it to others in my life, I mean, it's a good lesson. But it's a, yeah, I, I think choice is too strong a word because that implies it's a conscious choice. And then we, we tell people silly things like, well, you just, you're just choosing to suffer. But they're not. I mean, in that sense, suffering is real. People have real suffering. It's not just that they're choosing to, because they're ornery or something. But you are right. And that's a very good thing to watch, observe, how the pain does not necessarily produce suffering. This is what we're talking about, the thirst. What makes you think it's yours? If it's just a phenomena arising in consciousness, and you really experience it that way, there's no suffering attached to it. Still pain, physical pain, but it's just phenomena arising in consciousness. And that is even too cold a way to say it. Because really, God is an artist. And this is, this is the artwork unfolding before your eyes. It's not just something neutral. Well, it doesn't cause any pain. It's all actually an expression of an underlying inherent bliss that is the nature of consciousness. The, the, this overflowing of love, bliss, these inadequate terms we have, that, that it, it's constantly giving and never asking anything back. The Tao feeds all the creatures and never asks anything in return, does all these things, never claims merit for itself. These are the Chinese way of describing this total selfless quality of consciousness's Giving and the giving is all this. As Ananda Moyamai says, it's her gift to herself. It's another nice way to put it.
All right, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're welcome to hang around and have some tea and definitely check out the library if you haven't seen it before. And we will see you all anon. Remember that uh, next two Sundays will be closed.